Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Niklas Savos, and next to me is my friend, Eddie Palmgren. How are you today? I'm great and really, really excited to go to Omaha for Berkshire's annual meeting and also a few days in New York. We will meet uh, previous guests, and if any of you listeners are also there, we would love to meet up. You can contact us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye. Today's guest, Sri Vishwanathan will also be in Omaha for Buffett, and he will present on Willow Oaks event on April 30. Since 2018, Sri is the founder, president, and portfolio manager of SVN Capital. He grew up in India and came to the US to pursue graduate studies in 1989. He has worked in investment banking with mergers and acquisitions, corporate development, and as a portfolio manager. And the book for today is a spiritual one, A Search in Secret India. Why did we chose this title? And uh, yeah, some can wonder, did we already run out of investing books? <laughs> Not yet. Uh, we still have a few hundred investment-related books on our list. But uh, we spoke to Sri, asked uh, what books he would like to talk about. And he suggested this one as it has been very influential for him uh, in his journey as an investor and, and person. So none of us had read it before and we thought it seemed like a, an interesting classic. And as we have said before, we, we believe it's necessary to go into other fields to become a better investor. So this really fits that category. And briefly, what's the book about? Yeah, first published in 1934. This book is a travel diary from India by Paul Brunton. Uh, he is credited with being the first person to introduce yoga and meditation to the Western world. And Brunton wanted to learn more about the powers of yogis and other masters in India, but with this scientific attitude. And uh, he remained very rational, which is something that was appealing to me when I read it. And the book is full of these kind of remarkable stories as he goes around India and all the lessons that he is uh, gaining from meetings with both real masters, but also these uh, pretenders. And what I also like is that Brunton has a very candid and real purpose. He, he wants to learn and he wants to become a better uh, person and a spiritual journey here. And uh, yeah, this learning curve is something that is relatable for us in this ambition for the podcast and also as investors. How does the book relate to our quality rating? So I think the point you made about Brunton meeting both real masters and pretenders uh, in his journey is uh, is profound. And uh, I think uh, it's similar to how we try to understand the difference between good and bad people um, uh, in, in our quest for for rating the the managers and the owners and board members, uh, which is central in our people rating. Uh, as investors, as investors, we always need to keep an open mind and still be skeptical to what we hear. And uh, one method is to demand uh, proof and a track record. But uh, some judgments are truly qualitative and subjective, which is why investing is a form of art. We are grateful to have a very thoughtful investor and person on the podcast here to discuss A Search in Secret India by Paul Brunton. Here comes our conversation with Sri Vishwanathan. Hi, Shrey, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. I sincerely appreciate this, and thank you for having me here today. And where are you today? I'm based in uh, the northern suburbs of Chicago, a place called Lincolnshire, and uh, working from my home office. Uh, and can you briefly tell our listeners about yourself? Sure, but before I even uh, you know, start answering that question, I'd like to thank this gentleman, Alexander Nordstern, um, who uh, connected with me on Twitter. We've exchanged a few, uh, we've been in contact on a number of different topics, um, a couple of different stocks. 
And uh, he's the one who introduced me to you folks. Um, I think his Twitter handle is at AssonMoneyMess. And uh, a huge, huge thank you to Alexander for doing this. But to answer your question um, a little bit about me, uh, I'm originally from India, South India. I came here in the late uh, 80s to the U.S. as a student pursuing graduate studies in, account- in accounting. Initially had some interest in pursuing a PhD as well, but um, didn't see light at the end of that tunnel. And so just continued to work as an accountant. Um, but after being bitten by some kind of uh, an investment bug, I decided to go to the University of Chicago for my MBA, and I've been in capital markets ever since, initially as an investment banker and then as as an investor over the last number of years. We'll get into your experience and your life now as a money manager a bit later, but coming back to your normal life today, how how are your life and what are your three most important habits? This relates uh, very closely to the book that we're going to be discussing today as well. So, um, you know, what used to be an av- on an average about an hour-long meditation sitting in a pretzel position um, has evolved into an exercise that uh, I call as ego reduction. It would be nice if I can get to ego elimination, but I call this an ego reduction exercise. Um, This is a direct outcome of the book that we're going to be discussing. And um, the guru, the protagonist, uh, his teachings. Um, I'm sure we'll get to all that in a a second. But that typically um, has been the first activity in my day on a regular basis. Journaling is the other one that um, I do on a very regular basis. Um, Over the years, and particularly after I launched SVN Capital, um, I've come to appreciate the importance of this habit. Um, I know there's a gentleman by the name of Chris Bailey, uh, a Canadian who has written a number of different books. Um, One that sort of stands out is a book titled... uh, the productivity project. He says that the mind is not for storing information, but to be a fountain of information and to be able to think clearly and be a better fountain of ideas and information. um, I have to pour my emotions out onto paper, onto computer these days. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I just write, um, certain days it's just a bullet or two and certain other days uh, we spend uh, uh, you know hours on during the day keep coming back to it hours on end um, you know journaling my uh, my ideas and emotions and then of course um, you know we are in the profession of investing reading is a very important raw material uh, or ingredient that creates that raw material, I guess. And, um, you know, spend uh, much of my day reading, 
um, reading, you know, about the companies or generally books and other articles. So I'd say those are my three uh, uh, important activities during the day. You mentioned your uh, education on uh, accounting earlier and and of course that's important for for investors but you you, you said you were bitten by the investment bug can you tell us about that story how you became a, a, an investor as you as you work now yeah i think that's an important and an interesting uh, question as well so uh, but unlike you know many of the uh, investing greats uh, who worked as a young kid um, you know, mowing lawns or, um, you know, paper delivery or whatever that may be, using that cash to get uh, started as an investor, you know, making mistakes early on and getting started as an investor. That was not, um, that was not my path. Um, you know, I didn't stumble into investing until I was well into my 20s. Um, you know, it was actually, I remember the day that I remember the time at which point I became, uh, really, uh, smitten by this bug. And that was August of 1995. Um, I was working as an accountant at a principal financial group in Des Moines, Iowa. That was on the uh, international subsidiary, um, principal international. They were setting up, uh, offices around the world, mostly in emerging markets. And I was an accountant on the principal international side, traveling quite a bit. Um, my office, my cube, was right next to the investment team's cube. And in August of 1995 is when uh, Warren Buffett had announced the second tranche of Geico acquisition. There was about $2.3 billion. And uh, I'm not even sure if the investment team had an investment in Geico at that point. But just that announcement seemed to create a lot of buzz. And while I had heard of Warren Buffett, I didn't necessarily, um, I didn't necessarily know much about investing or um, Berkshire Hathaway or insurance and float and things like that. But uh, that's what got me started thinking about what next. You know, yeah, I'm an accountant, but is that what I want to do for the rest of my life? And uh, that's what got me started. Um, and I started investigating op- opportunities to sort of make that transition over. And that's when I uh, decided to, you know, a couple of years later, um, I decided to join um, University of Chicago. And as I said, I started as an investment banker and then transitioned into into the buy side as an investor. And for this conversation, you have chosen the book A Search in Secret India. Why is that? This book had a profound impact on who I am, uh, you know, on how I have evolved and who I am today. I grew up in a city called Chennai in South India. It used to be called Madras. Uh, it's now called Chennai. Um, my parents were religious. That's how we were all raised. Yeah, but uh, growing up, I was always interested in the spiritual aspect rather than the religious aspect. And I somehow felt, kept feeling uncomfortable about how that was a little odd relative to the rest of the family. 
Um, but I kept pursuing that, and even as a uh, as a you know high schooler, particularly as a college student, I started testing out a number of meditation techniques, transcendental meditation. You know, um, this was uh, made famous by the Beatles, um, and then later on uh, techniques by uh, techniques by um, um, a guru from uh, Burma, a methodology called Vipassana. Um, and, uh, you know, along the line, um, a couple of other methods, uh, another guru by the name of Paramahansa Yogananda. I know the words are fairly long. That's how the Indian names are. But uh, uh, his methodology was something called Kriya Yoga. Um, I even read a little bit about Thich Nhat Hanh's, uh, um, you know, meditation technique. Read a book about a uh, book by J. Krishnamurthy, uh, which I have to tell, you know, I did not understand uh, any of it at that time. But I kept testing many uh, different methods. I'd get excited about a particular type, and then I realized that oh period of time I you know kept losing interest in that method and I started looking for something else. But this spiritual aspect always uh, you know was important for me. And uh, you know that's when I remember um, uh, I, I remember reading the book uh, the first time. And it's you know this may be a sort of a good time to explain to your uh, listeners as to what this book is about and who wrote this book. So the title of the book, as you said, is A Search in Secret India. It was written by one Mr. Paul Brunton. He was a writer, philosopher, a journalist um, from UK in the early 1900s. He wrote the book in the 1930s or maybe 1940s. His experience was in the 30s. And that's what he was. Um, that's what he was uh, writing about. So uh, he was generally, uh, you know, skeptical about the spiritual, uh, the so-called spiritual aspect of India. Um, he wanted to explore that uh, that uh, that aspect uh, firsthand, and so he visited India. So uh, essentially, he was good. He was looking for gurus, and uh, he was wandering through much of the country um, and kept stumbling onto many of the quacks or self-described gurus. So this book is essentially his travelogue, which then became his spiritual enlightenment log. Um, so, uh, you know, the book goes on to talk about how he uh, stumbled onto this particular guru that he really respected. He was convinced that he's the one that he was looking for. So he asked him if uh, this guru can take Paul Brunton as a student. He says no, but uh, he recommends uh, this particular individual, um, Ramana Maharshi, in uh, a small town in South India called Thiruvannamalai. By the way, this place, Thiruvannamalai, um, is only a couple of hours from where I grew up. I remember going there with my parents 
and it did not make it did not have any impact on me at that time but uh um so uh you know back to the book um you know when i read this the first time i was impressed particularly probably because you know um the the uh, gurus and the locations that paul was writing about were uh they resonated well with me because i had also visited those places some of them and uh probably that's the reason why it sort of resonated well with me um and uh i left it there and then some years later um i was listening to this interview of one mr david godman um on a podcast titled buddha at the gas pump it's a it's an interesting title uh if you um you know if you are ever interested in exploring this uh spiritual slash theological aspect it's a it's a good one to listen to but david godman was on that podcast once and answered some incredible questions and he referred to this book david godman by the way is also from um from england and has been living in uh, tiruvannamalai since the 1970s and um you know he went on to explain the his own uh path of how he stumbled onto ramana maharshi's teachings and uh, what his um what his uh experience has been and how he interprets um you know the maharshi's teachings that then you know forced me to go back to this book and that's when i really picked up some phenomenal nuggets um nuggets from the book and um um i've then gone on to explore a lot more um in that area so paul brunton uh wrote this book and essentially even though ramana maharshi was popular locally in that city and neighborhood and in south india paul is the one who sort of made him an international figure through this book later on a gentleman by the name of arthur osborne um took the baton and he has written a couple of different books and that's the book that got david godman started godman is still alive and uh um uh, and uh you know uh, he has written a number of books and his teachings have been exceptionally helpful uh for somebody like me to understand the teachings so um at this point you know you and your listeners are probably wondering okay that's all great or well, what is that what is you know uh what do these things have uh, to do with an investing podcast or investments let me try and make that connection um you know it's widely accepted and is well known that ego is the source of many problems in life particularly in investing uh in the investing arena uh i at least you know think of ego as the primary source of uh problems it makes you overconfident makes you um think that you know answers to questions that you really don't um yada 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 you know there are there are uh, a number of ego originated problems particularly in the investing arena 
And, um, uh, you know, from the moment one wakes up in the morning till one shuts the eyes at night, the process of this reinforcing the ego goes on. What do I mean by that? Well, the subject, I, for example, subject, I, say, if I taste a, you know, good ice cream, um, what's the experience there? The experience is I, the subject, have tasted a good ice cream, the object, or I, the subject, have seen a beautiful picture, the object. And this goes on for, you know, the throughout the day. And essentially what happens there is the subject-object relationship reinforces the ego. And um, um, from our standpoint, from investment standpoint, if my objective is to reduce the, influ the influence of ego, hopefully eliminate, I don't know if I will ever be, be able to eliminate the influence of ego in my lifetime, but uh, I'm trying. And that's where this this explanation, the book, the uh, you know uh, David Godman's explanations and the book and Ramana Maharshi's teachings come into play. And uh, that is, um, don't reinforce the subject-object relationship, but try and undo it. How do we try and undo it? The uh, recommendation is to observe the observer. Ask. Who is having that thought? Who is tasting that ice cream? Who is observing that beautiful picture? And once you start exploring that question, who is, who am I or who is um, going through this experience? It so happens that the amplitude of the emotional movement sort of reduces. And uh, that is the reason why I personally have um, become a lot more um, attached, enthusiastic, um, uh, and a practicer of this, of this method. And that's the reason why I have recommended this book for our discussion today. And as you said, you have these ego reduction practices. Can you say a little bit more how you, how you do that practically? Yeah, so, um, you know, as I said, uh, for a long time, um, I've, been, uh, I've been a regular meditator. There were times when I was very regular and there were times when I was irregular, but uh, I would always try and, um, uh, you know, try and um, take up some, you know, somewhere between 30 to 45 minutes a day. Um, just sitting in pretzel position and uh, um, meditate. Um, as I said, I went through so many different methodologies, transcendental, vipassana, um, uh, you know, kriya yoga, all, all those different methodologies um, sort of uh, required that I, again, the subject, um, was... Uh, imagining was thinking about either nothing or some kind of uh, light or something uh, that each one of those methods recommended and uh, once i started going back to um, you know ramana maharshi's teachings when um, 
he uh, and his recommendations became a lot more important for me. I sort of gave up on that sitting in pretzel position and constantly asking myself this question, particularly when I'm either really happy or really sad, who is going through this emotion? And uh, that's not a specific time period during the day sort of an exercise. It's an ongoing exercise. Many times um, I miss, you know, many times what would happen is I'd go through the emotional up or the emotional down. And after that event is when I will remind myself that I need to ask this question. So it's a constant uh, practice, but I can tell that uh, it has had a profound impact. Um, as I said, you know, my hope is to tamp down that emotional amplitude all the way down, but uh, I'm not there yet. So it's an ongoing process. Um, that's a recommendation directly from um, Ramana Maharshi. It's really interesting. And uh, I just uh, started to think about a book I read a few years back from Tony Robbins about that i mean you shouldn't use um, language as i'm angry or or so on i mean have you read the book and i mean is can can you relate that to this that you're saying now yeah i have heard him speak i've heard him talk about the book i haven't i've read a few of his books but i've not read this particular one i can certainly relate to this that reinforcing uh, the subject i um, if we can eliminate that, uh, life would be life would be uh, you know much more happier. Going back to, for example, going back to Ramana Maharshi, he never uh, called himself by his name. From what I understand from David's writings and Paul's writings, from those things, what I understand is that uh, to eliminate that subject I, he never referred to himself as uh, Ramana Maharshi. Uh, he let others call him that, but he never really, uh, you know, referred to that term. And uh, that's probably what uh, Tony Robbins is referencing as well. Various different Western practitioners have um, arrived at that at that point. A gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Wayne Dwight Wayne Dyer. He passed away a few years ago. He's written a number of books. Um, you know, Western theologian. Um, he's referenced Hinduism and uh, spirituality in a few of his books, but uh, he also references this uh, this point about I, eliminating that I. So um, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but... Uh, oh, it was a, a, a hard question as you haven't read the book, but it, it was just about that, I mean, reinforcing the emotions. That That's really what that book is about, I think, that don't say, like, I'm angry, because then you get even more angry. And and so if, if you state that, then, so, so yeah. That was what made me think about that. Yeah. My interpretation from uh, trying to reduce or removing the ego is that you, you try to go beyond the mind and not to think like think about the thinker and observe the thinker in you. But uh, in the book, I, I also like this quote that uh, the body influences thought no less than thought influences the body. So it goes, when you start, when you look at the mind and the body, it goes both ways. And so I'm wondering if you, and, and maybe it's a good to start 
with the body and then move to the mind and then try to go beyond the mind. Yeah. How are you taking care of your body and health in that sense? I remember that uh, quote. It actually reminds me of George Soros and his... uh, famous signal from his back pain. You know, not sure if you've heard this, but uh, whenever he felt severe back pain, he knew it was time to tweak his portfolio. It actually uh, is somewhat um, reflective of, of this particular statement. The body influences the thought, no less than the thought influences the body. For me to sort of relate uh, back to this uh, book, um, you know, a number of different points, but I'll highlight a couple related to this. The lessons um, from from the book as it relates to this statement is, even if you're skeptical about something, um, you know, it just helps to keep an open mind for serendipity to hit you. Um, And then, you know, the other point that sort of uh, resonated um, with me is, um, you know, he, Paul had the vision to know what he was in front of. He was in front of a great sage. He had the courage to stick around. Remember, this is a Brit who was in a very hot South Indian small town in the 1930s. Um, he's in front of an Indian saint who's guiding him through self-realization exercise. He had the patience to stick around for he eventually gets the experience himself. Now, um, I'm sure you've read the book uh, by Thomas Phelps, 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. This is essentially what Thomas Phelps wrote about in his book. You know, to uh, be a successful investor, one needs to have the vision to see the opportunity, courage to buy it, and patience to hold it. Patience is the rarest of the three. So while this is a book about spirituality, I think there is, since much of investing and much of spirituality is about mind, we can um, we can uh, connect the dots at different points. This is how I connected the dots in a couple of different points. And uh, I mean, from reading the book, you can really see how, how these uh, masters, uh, the yogis, uh, can really, I mean, uh, just turn off their mind. Similarly, maybe to, to Charlie Munger is famous for just uh, shutting down. I mean, uh, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think um, some masters even uh, give this wow of silence, not to speak at all. Uh, so I wonder, ha- have you tried any of this and, and has it helped you in any way? Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, uh, Ramana Maharshi's uh, teachings, um, his primary, uh, his primary uh, recommendation is to be silent, to be silent and uh, uh, just observe. Um, and... Uh, for those that are a lot more um, active that come to him and say, okay, I've tried that, but uh, can you actually make some other recommendation? For those, he recommended ask this question, who am I? You know, who is experiencing this? Observe the observer. So 
Um, that's from the book. For me, yes, I, as I said, meditation, um, silence, now this ego reduction or self-realization is a part of uh, my daily life. Um, and, and uh, that, you know, that all, again, connects back to the mind and thinking, right? Uh, thoughts and thinking. It was, uh, uh, was it Henry Ford? I think it was Henry Ford who said, uh, you know, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason why so few engage in it. Um, you know, for the professions that we have chosen, um, you know, that uh, thinking is the important raw material. And I'm always constantly working on improving the quality of that raw material. And, um, and this recommendation to sort of, uh, uh, you know, open up the fountain of ideas by, uh, slowing down the emotional amplitude, um, journaling, getting the emotions out so that you can allow serendipity to hit. Um, all that sort of is an ongoing exercise that helps me. Um, you know, uh, as I said, particularly when I'm, when I'm, uh, down or really happy, I let this, um, exercise go full force. You know, uh, who, who is, who is experiencing this? And, uh, all that entails remaining silent, observing your own thoughts. Uh, if you actually stop for a minute, and consider, you know, your thoughts as a sort of a big rectangular box and peered into it. And I think what you'll see is a good mix of a variety of different types of thoughts. Some good thoughts, some bad thoughts, some really crazy thoughts. And uh, uh, without necessarily judging, um, if you just observed, I think um, that slowing down process, that emotional amplitude reducing will happen automatically. It may not happen the first time, may not happen the second time. Like many other good things, it sort of happens over a long stretch of time. So silence is an important, very important aspect of it. Um, some have, uh, uh, you know, some take to just, uh, uh, going on long walks. You know, I just recently read this book by Bill Bryson, who walk in the woods. Um, uh, you know, uh, so some take a different approaches to uh, getting that uh, solitude and calmness into their life, which helps them think clearly. Um, I don't. I live in Chicago almost six months of the year. Uh, six to eight months of the year. It's pretty darn cold. I don't go on those types of walks. And um, I, tra I take a few different uh, paths to get my solitude in. I'm still working. I'm a work in progress in this regard and um, still working on it full force. So that takes us into your life as a money manager. And you are the founder, president and portfolio manager of SVN Capital. So can you please tell us a bit about how you operate? Yeah, um, you know, just as a quick uh, 
continuation of the uh, initial uh, background that I gave. Um, you know, after graduating from the University of Chicago, I worked as an M&A banker, first in the East Coast, then in the West Coast. Uh, I was at Alex Brown in uh, Baltimore, the East Coast, San Francisco in the West Coast. I returned to Chicago to set up a small financials-focused hedge fund. I then worked for a couple of storied Chicago-based investment firms, advisory research first, and then Keeley Asset Management. Um, you know, all through that process, particularly after I joined um, advisory, I read the, uh, you know, classics on investments by Ben Graham, Phil Fisher, Buffett Letters. Um, and I was a, you know, classic value investor um, in that sense. Uh, you know, value investor in that um, investments were focused primarily on valuation-based cheapness. Um, it took me, uh, it took me a while. Um, and that's, I think, based on at least the type of uh, individuals that I have followed and tracked. Um, you know, it's not surprising that I also went through this process. Um, you know, um, because it's, uh, uh, because the valuation aspect is somewhat easy to appreciate and understand. Um, you know, Ben Graham's initial teachings are a lot more appealing than, um, you know, for example, Phil Fisher's or, you know, Buffett's, uh, Phase two. I'm not even talking about Buffett's phase three of Apple and many others. Um, and, uh, and so that's how I sort of, uh, have evolved. Today, my strategy at SVN Capital, um, you know, it's a, it's a long only global, global with some caveats, concentrated portfolio of equity securities. Um, my investment Criteria entail getting an affirmative answer to the following four questions. First is the proverbial circle of competence question. Do I understand the business? You know, there are industries and sectors like oil and gas, you know, uh, exploration production or uh, biotech or mining or Bitcoin, those are all areas that are outside my circle. And so I stay away from those. Fortunately, there are a few that I do understand. And, you know, that's my question number one. Question number two is, is it a high quality business? Um, even though quality by its very definition has non-quantitative features, um, you know, since financials are available, we're able to put some quantitative angle to that as well. And so I evaluate the quality of a business based on both qualitative features like competitive strength and quantitative features, a number of different metrics and, um, and uh, um, valuation approaches. Number three is, is it run by a good, is it run by honest, competent management team with skin in the game? Um, Typically, owner operators are a lot more appealing to me in that in that regard. And then finally, uh, is it a, is it available at a reasonable valuation? So it's across the board. Any country, any company I'm looking at, 
um, those are the four questions. I end up spending a lot more time on question number two and three, quality of the business and quality of the management team. And uh, the, uh, the approach is to avoid the three T's that are the bane of investing, turnover, taxes, and transaction cost. So I currently have only 11 securities and um, uh, I just started buying one earlier this year. Um, I don't trade much and uh, the idea, the objective is to, uh, is to you know, uh, double the capital over a business cycle. Business cycle is five to seven years. And uh, not that I have to um, end that investment after that business cycle is over. Obviously, if they're performing well, the longer, the better. Um, but that's the objective and that's the strategy. So it's a concentrated global portfolio of equity securities mixed with a healthy dose of patience to allow compounding to work. Sounds very promising. Uh, but you, you, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you've only had it since 2018, so maybe it's a bit short uh, time. But how, how has your performance been? So far, okay. Uh, could be better, could have been better. Um, if anybody wanted to uh, time the market, I think they should reach out and talk to me because I seem to know the exact right time to start and uh, get clobbered. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, um, it's a fairly long duration strategy. I always tell my prospects that, uh, uh, you know, give me at least five years to look back to so for you to be able to evaluate the quality of the performance and uh, quality of the portfolio itself. Yeah, it's just a couple of years since I since I started, and um, I hope to be able to uh, meet the objective when we look back seven, ten plus years later. And you are open for new investors, or? I am. Something I thought about when uh, reading this book and something we have touched upon with uh, several of our guests is uh, the importance of building a strong pattern recognition as an investor to identify new opportunities. And some can call this intuition. And I think that is a bit related to spiritualism. Uh, is that something you think about and use uh, when investing? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think I do and I'll try and explain as to as to why and how intuition is a very uh, interesting uh, interesting word. Uh, the way at least I understand this is um, it's a process that gives us the ability to know something without analytical reasoning, and um, you know it bridges the gap between conscious and the non-conscious part of the mind. Um, and also between instinct and reason. Uh, we need both instinct and reason to make the best possible decisions, particularly in investing. And, um, um, and so, you know, the tools I use, you know, journaling, for example, Barton Biggs in his, uh, fantastic book, the diary of a hedgehog. Um, you know, he says that it would be better to write down the emotional uh, trips as it happens. Uh, while I don't necessarily write down things as it is happening, 
and maintain a reg regular journal that you know aids in this process. And then um, that solitude, that uh, silence, that allows um, you know full-fledged dialogues to happen within within my own mind. And um, and so I you know to 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 answer your question, do I use intuition to um, for for the investment portfolio? I think a lot of us do. I certainly seem to. Since, um, uh, as I mentioned, I use journal journaling and uh, the silence to be a part of my daily routine. I don't know if that answers your question. Definitely. Interesting. You really thought about it and you seem to be very aware of it. And is it just a, a follow-up question on intuition? I guess, I mean, you're trying to find really the, the great businesses out there. And uh, is your intuition often right? I mean, from a perspective of you're starting to research a business um, and you can, I, I, at least I feel that if I've done some research, I can see, okay, I, I think this is a great business. Um, but I'm not sure, of course. I need to do the, the deep due diligence after. But how, how is it for you? Uh, is it usually the case that you confirm that you're right in the beginning or? No, not really. Uh, or... I I would say it's it's a mix of a number of uh, things. Um, it takes a long time for me to get that conviction. Um, for example, this particular investment that I've started buying this year, and I remember looking at this uh, almost two plus years ago, passed on it for a few different reasons. Um, and uh, I kept monitoring the performance, the stock price, um, you know, reading up on their transcripts and generally um, kept a, a quick quick tab of what's happening. And that's fairly typical, at least uh, uh, the way I, I operate these days. But uh, um, sometimes what happens is these types of businesses that I've been monitoring um, for a variety of reasons, for example, in 2020, um, you know, I remember um, adding Copart um, to the portfolio. The, now, this was a company that I had actually misanalyzed back when I was in uh, at advisory research, uh, you know, in 2009-2010 timeframe. I was trying to put a value on just the real estate part of Copart, completely ignoring you know, because real estate had been the epicenter of that turmoil, I was trying to see if I can actually uh, just value the real estate part of it. And that was just a completely messed up way to look at a company like this. Um, and so, uh, you know, I never really, I never really, um, we didn't buy into Copart at that time. But uh, on and off, I would go back and look at, uh, their performance, their annual reports, and um, it kept happening. And in 2020, because of what they do, you know, uh, to your listeners that may not be familiar with Copart, it's a, it's the largest salvage yard company in the United States, um, where they store all these uh, vehicles that are either dinged or damaged. It's essentially 
the eBay of dinged and damaged vehicles. They auction the vehicles and the buyers are US and non-US as well. And uh, because of what they do, you know, in 2020, when COVID hit, um, traffic on the road declined precipitously. People were not going to their offices. And uh, and as a result, the stock got hit. Um, you know, it was down as much as 40, 45% within a very quick uh, span of time. And I ended up adding it to the portfolio. I'm a, um, a happy investor, still delighted with how they're operating today. Um, but that sort of uh, development happened within a very short span of time. But the analysis, you know, it goes back a, a lot longer on that name. And, um, and so uh, uh, the quality analysis is something um, is something that uh, uh, you know I I undertake from a variety of different angles. You know, the comp- competitive analysis is an important aspect in this case. Essentially, there are two companies that do this. Copart is the dominant um, salvage yard operator in the U.S. Um, and uh, beyond that, you know, look at the balance sheet. Is it a self-funding mechanism? Um, uh, you know, what have the uh, returns been in cash, not necessarily just the gap earnings or IFRS earnings, but in cash? And um, how has the management team uh, used that capital? Uh, in this case, essentially, they're they're not returning it uh, back to investors as dividends or buybacks. They're very opportunistic with buybacks. They just uh, go acquire uh, land for more salvage yards. And that's been a phenomenal uh, use of capital um, from us, the investors standpoint. So evaluate quality from a variety of angles. And um, um, I have not been right all the time. If that was one of your um, your, uh, leading uh, points in that question, Um, I've made mistakes. I'm sure I'll make more mistakes, but hopefully um, I've learned from some of those mistakes in the past. Um, In the past, uh, the uh, analysis of quality was not necessarily this focused from a competitive standpoint or from a structure standpoint. And uh, all those have been big lessons that that helped me run SVN Capital today. That's interesting, and uh, I mean, I I didn't I didn't uh, want to ask that leading <laughs> leading question, but, <laughs> but uh, in a bit the question was more about that. I mean, you increased your your pattern recognition, and and maybe now that that you are becoming more more and more of a invest in, investing master, you know, I mean, you you do some checks before you even start to look at a business. So, so of course you have some knowledge about it, and you wouldn't do your your deep work if you didn't think that. That this is a good one. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, uh, yeah, the first and foremost question in that regard would be the competitive strength of the business. You know, if there is one constant in business, it is reversion to mean. If a business is generating twenty percent return on capital, um, you know, invariably 
there's going to be some kind of a competition that will bring that number down. And uh, that's, the, that's the constant in the, in the business world. But there are some businesses that sort of either avoid this reversion to mean or, uh, or at least able to defer that reversion to mean. Um, in fact, there is a, there's a fantastic uh, speech by Peter Thiel, um, which is available on YouTube. Um, he gave this speech at Stanford in 2017. I think it's titled, uh, Competition is for Losers. Um, it's 50 plus minutes and I think it's highly, uh, I would highly recommend it. Um, you know, in it, he says, uh, you know, competition is good for capitalism, but it's not good for capitalists. Um, while it may be a little jarring, um, to, uh, to hear from, um, from certain angles in the community, I think it is, uh, it is a very powerful statement. And, um, and so competitive analysis is one that I focus on early on these days and, uh, try and avoid, you know, highly competitive, uh, areas, even if, say, the returns have been good or the quality of the management team is good. Um, because eventually the, uh, reversion to mean, uh, disease will come back to bite them, come back to hurt them. So that's the that's the uh, you know first point of uh, analysis, and then later on uh, move on to some of the more quantitative analysis um, before spending a whole lot of time trying to understand the history, trying to understand um, the future. So I wanted to ask also what this what's your common biases as an investor? Yeah, I think anchoring. Or confirmation bias is one that I'm always working on. Um, I was always, I was, in the past, I was also a lot more worried about overconfidence. Um, but I think, I don't know this for a fact, um, for me, I'm a lot more satisfied with the approach that I take these days with this ego reduction, self-realization, exercise and so the overconfidence part um i think i have i'm trying to successfully reduce that but this anchoring or confirmation bias is one that i think um i still need to improve upon for example the price of a stock um that has gone up since i looked at it in the past um you know uh, it still has an impact on how I think about investing now, you, you know, now that the stock has gone up X percent. Um, while I remind myself that that is, prob- that is probably an anchoring or a confirmation bias, I still find it difficult to get over that hump. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there are other biases, but those are, that's the primary one. And the one that I'm constantly worried about is this overconfidence. I just don't want to fall uh, victim to that, into that trap. And uh, have you found any sort of solutions to the anchoring bias? Um, I haven't, or else I wouldn't be uh, uh, bringing this up. <laughs> Maybe the, the solution is probably constantly 
reminding myself that there is a possibility of this bias and uh, I may have to revisit those situations again after I have sort of uh, come out of that um, come out of that time period in the book I think it was very interesting also with the overconfidence as you speak about that all these so-called masters and they think very highly about themselves yeah and moving over to the people's part because uh, to me this book is one part is so many lessons about uh, looking inward and your own journey but another big part is uh, the search for a teacher or a master or uh, an expert and Branton he meets so many interesting characters during this journey and you call some of them quacks and some uh, might be true masters but it's also the also this discussion with the people he meets during the journey uh, some say that you need a true master to absolutely to succeed and others say that no it's better that you just follow your own path and don't listen to others and to me this really relates as an investor i'm always looking for inspiration and but i'm also trying to have room for independent thinking so i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this you know i can certainly relate to that question myself say so the thing about spiritual pursuit and investing at least the way i do it and the way you folks do it is that uh, it's an individual exercise it's not a group exercise um index investing or the so called active investing that's closet indexing that's more of a group exercise So that's probably the reason why you're asking me this question um um as to whether it whether I'm able to relate to this or not. Um I absolutely agree that to hone this craft uh it helps to have a have a master. The master need not necessarily be in a human form. And that was a surprise for me when I started digging through this um through this book and the other books that I um that I stumbled upon it need not be a in a human form in fact ramana maharshi um you know he considered uh the hill arunachala you know which is uh, the foot of the hill he actually lived in the hill for a little while but his ashram is in the the uh bottom of the hill uh he actually considered the hill to be his master for us mere mortals i think we have books we have lots and lots of books that's why we read so many books each one is a potential master um and after thinking and reading about it, about the subject about whatever it may be for a while the mind gets to a point when it's ready to accept the real master um you know since we are talking about investing uh, you know uh, let's consider let's consider what happened you know how warren buffett sort of uh, uh you know stumbled onto this spiritual uh path you know um he was a voracious reader um he read so many investing books mostly technicals and you know not necessarily investing related and then he stumbles onto ben graham ben graham's book um 
and uh, you know he devoured it and uh, in his mind he was ready to meet the real master and um, the rest of course is history now there's an old indian saying when the student is ready the teacher will appear and so um, um you know the relatable part for me to answer this question is lots and lots of books and um when i'm ready in a particular area i will meet the true master i may not know who it is as we sit today you know um since i'm so uh, um committed to this spiritual path um you know since david godman is still alive um i think uh, i think of the day when i will be able to meet him in person and that may be the master that uh, uh that sort of uh you know helps me out in that in that path of course we have lots of lots and lots of um, you know investment gurus and teachers uh, and i'm sure you're going to be in uh, omaha in a couple of months we've got two great ones ready to teach us um again and uh, it's up to us to get the mind to be ready to accept those lessons and um and so yeah you know the relatable part is uh um is an important is an important one and and i think um we just need to get the mind you know hone the mind to a point where we are ready to accept that master very thoughtful answer because i i've been thinking about this more from a people's standpoint and not that it could be something else than than a person but of course it can yeah uh, but if we if we stay on the people side because uh, also when judging ceos and management and other people which we have to do in, in as an investor we need to determine which ones are real and which ones are are pretenders and i think uh, when i read this book it was just fascinating to see that during his journey the the best masters what i could see they uh, they live apart from the world and they do not seek fame or followers they are humble in appearance and humbler still in mode of living and they allow everyone the utmost freedom of action and then when we look at the the worst pretenders my my summarize thing part there is that they suffer from colossal delusions from their own greatness right uh, he mentions that they are prophets whose predictions are seldom accurate they have a big need for attention and their identity is attached to this role and they speak bad about others so uh, i think this is a great list for when you look at some like people in every aspect but is there something you think that is missing from this list when analyzing businesses and people for well, you have really uh, um annotated the book quite well <laughs> thank you dissecting it <laughs> yeah um i mean evaluating people is uh, is a is an important craft and um for what we do as you mentioned evaluating management teams um it's it's a it's a craft that sort of uh, has to be honed over a period of time but that's a craft again that lies between instinct and reason i think um you know 
as as investors, we want management teams to be good stewards of capital, um, and and it's an important uh, it's an important tool. As I mentioned, that's the third question in my investment criteria: uh, honest, competent management teams with skin in the game. And um, um, what can what can help us, um, you know, filter out the bad ones um, from the good ones? I think it just happens over a stretch of time by sheer practice. Um, you know, as you laid out, there are in addition to what you laid out as far as the investment side of things are concerned. You know, uh, there are a few other data points that may help us with that evaluation. Ownership interest, you know, particularly in the West, it doesn't necessarily apply across the world. Uh, parts of Asia, ownership interest may not necessarily mean the same thing as it means in the West. Uh, but, um, you know, generally speaking, ownership interest, um, compensation structure, um, and incentive programs, um, they can all sort of give, um, a good color as to how, um, as to how good a steward a particular management team is. Uh, another important signal would be from from history. You know, if we, um, uh, it was I think Winston Churchill who said, "The farther back you look, the farther forward you will be able to see." And I typically look for at least ten years of history, operating history. Some of the companies that I own have not necessarily been public that long, and I'm not able to go all the way back ten years. But uh, um, you know, looking back in history is an important uh, tool, I think, particularly during um, troubled times. You know, the COVID kind of troubled times. Going, you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of um, examples. Um, using Copart, for example, as a as a as the first one. You know, back in two thousand eight. Um, you know, financial crisis was still raging on, full steam. It didn't necessarily turn until March of 2009, right? So late 2008, um, the founder, Willis Johnson, who was the CEO, and his son-in-law, Jay Adair, um, who was the president at that time, they went to the board and said, um, we, will, we would like to restructure the compensation program. They just took a dollar in cash and a million options each that rested over a few years. Um, Willis Johnson has retired since, and uh, Jay Adair has continued that policy you know, three, four times now. Um, and uh, you know, that by itself doesn't necessarily give us, um, give us a great picture, but the cash compensation expense that was saved at that time and since, is a good indi- is one good indicator. Plus, the way they were committed to the business from how opportunistic they were in buying back the stock a few times later. They don't still have a regularly scheduled buyback program like ma- most of the companies do. Uh, as I said, they don't necessarily return capital via dividends. So, uh, you know, they have skin in the game. Both of them still own a chunk, even though Willis Johnson has continued to sell down his stake He's in his late seventies, um, and um, and I think that kind of a history, along with 
the compensation structure, the incentive structure, ownership interest sort of gives us a little bit of um, color to evaluate the quality of the management team. Another example is, uh, I'd say, a company called Heiko. You know, it's a uh, it's a company that makes uh, aircraft parts, both for commercial and for uh, defense. Um, it's controlled by uh, this family, the father and two sons, the Mendelssohns, um, you know, because of what they do, essentially providing uh, parts, uh, aftermarket parts for commercial uh, aircraft. Uh, the business was hurt badly in 2020 when COVID hit and tra- travel essentially came to a halt. And, um, you know, they immediately went into a kind of a, um, you know, save cash kind of mode. The senior management team, the C-suite o- occupants took a pay cut. Um, they eventually had to lay off a few, but uh, um, initially it was just a furlough. Um, but they didn't necessarily uh, take any uh, incentives, uh, you know, uh, for that period. And uh, they've now restarted uh, now that the travel industry has come back and their own business has improved. They've now restarted it. I look at that compared to, you know, I have one particular uh, peer company in mind. I won't mention the name, but uh, they essentially went through the same process. But uh, it felt like they just kept moving the goalpost because the game had gotten a little tougher. And um, it sort of, uh, you know, gives you a good comparison as to how management teams um, uh, work during um, crisis periods like this. And um, that sort of is a tool to help evaluate the quality of the management team. So... Uh, while there is a qualitative aspect that uh, one can hone just by um, just by uh, being invested, being you know, you know being invested, being active, meeting them, meeting uh, others who know the management teams, that's just a qualitative aspect. But there are fortunately some quantitative um, data points that we can use to um, evaluate the. Uh, uh, evaluate the team. Um, so that's all from an investment standpoint. But uh, um, in the in the case of this book by Paul Brunton, I think I don't think he had any quantitative metrics to rely on. It was purely a qualitative feature. It was intuition. It was uh, uh, his own reasoning, and uh, that's how he sort of uh, you know uh, came to write this book. But it seems like an important criteria for you is that the business you invest in um, should have gone through difficult times because that's when you really see. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm really looking for them to have gone through uh, a difficult time, but we fortunately have enough data points to go back, right? And um, uh, and we can certainly use the history um, to provide some color about uh, about potential future should something like that happen you know in, in, it is not 100% certain that they will do the same thing again but it it at least gives you an interesting data point so yeah you know uh, i try and i try and go back 
to see how they have behaved. So speaking about uh, heritage and and history and with your background, I, I was a bit interesting. It was something that I thought about in the book is that many people that Brunton is meeting, they are worried that India is losing their touch with its spiritualism and, and culture wow. due to westernization. And this is in 1930s. So what is your view on this today? I mean, many people here in our office, we do yoga, we have meditation, but is it really the, the true practice? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, a, again, uh, as I said, it's a um, it's an individual exercise. If the question is, is and I'm worried about this uh, influence of westernization on some of the spiritual aspects of the, of, of the country, I am not. I'm absolutely not worried at all. And here's why, you know, um, I don't know if you remember this. Bill Gates, you know, years ago, he made that very famous comment, right? We always overestimate the change that will happen in the next two years, underestimate the change that will occur in the next 10. Um, you know, the near term is always influencing our mind a lot. Let's go back to India, though. You know, uh, as you know, the Brits actually landed in India in the early 1600s. And they ruled the country for close to 300 years. Um, but even prior to that, the French were there, the Portuguese were there, the Dutch were there. Um, and all through that, a Hindu country, India, was ruled, a big portion of it at least, was ruled by Muslims, by invaders from Persia. And, you know, uh, a country that has survived these types of uh, influences, upheavals, if you want to call it that, um, I'm absolutely certain will survive any influence of westernization that it's going through now. And are you investing in India? I'm currently not. Um, I'm uh, more from a technical standpoint because um, as a, an American, I'm, I'm an American citizen now, as an American passport, passport holder or as a non-Indian passport holder, one has to go through a few hoops to get clearance from SEBI, the Securities Exchange Board of India, to be able to trade in India. And I haven't gone through that hoop yet. And um, well, there are some fascinating businesses, uh, I'm just keeping an eye as a bystander from the sideline, not ready yet. And we spoke a bit about uh, change and uh, something that probably won't change is this uh, ultimate search that the human has to find uh, happiness. And that is kind of my main takeaway and conclusion from this book is that everyone is looking for happiness externally, or many most people do at least, while really the, the true happiness is, is the, in the human nature and it's found inside. So we just need to find our true selves. What are your thoughts about this? We Have you read uh, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, for example? I haven't. Um, I see it uh, being uh, um, talked about very extensively on Twitter and uh, other sources, but uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I've listened to his podcast and keep listening to his you know, quick snippet podcasts uh, all the time. But... Um, uh, now, I don't know to what extent, uh, you know, Warren Buffett 
uh, is inclined to spirituality, but he has written about this extensively. Um, you may wonder why or how. Now, uh, he said the big question about how people uh, behave is um, whether they've got an inner scorecard or an outer scorecard. It helps if you can be satisfied with an inner scorecard. What a powerful statement, right? And uh, um, I'm sure he's not thinking about this from a spiritual aspect, but I remember reading this years ago. Um, you know, and uh, I don't know if you've read the book uh, Snowball, um, Alice Schroeder. You know, she says Warren lays out this. Um, concept in a very interesting framework. You know, this is the classic old Warren Buffett coming at this from a somewhat uh, of a, you know, I don't know if it's, uh, yeah, uh, coming at it from a slightly quirky angle. Uh, his question, his point was, would you rather be the world's greatest lover, but have everyone think you're the world's worst lover, or would you rather be the world's worst lover, but have everyone think that you are the best? <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, uh, that's an interesting way to think about this. Um, but uh, this guy, uh, Shane Parrish. The Knowledge Project. Yeah, the Farnham Street. Yeah. He sort of retweaked that question and provided an, provided an answer to your question. Um, I remember reading this and he sort of rearranged the question and said, in the investment world, you know, if the world couldn't see your results, would you rather be thought of as the world's greatest investor, but in reality have the world's worst record or be thought of as the world's worst investor when you were actually the best, right? So all this is, uh, you know, uh, essentially, uh, saying it's better to have that inner scorecard and be not influenced by some of the external factors. And uh, again, I bring it back to this ego reduction slash self-realization exercise, which is all internal, nothing to do with uh, external. And have you reached that state of like happiness? I, I wish. I, I, I certainly wish. I certainly wish. No, I'm, I haven't. This is, uh, and that's the best part, right? You kind of uh, evolve every day, you know, through sheer practice. And uh, hopefully there will be a day when, um, I don't know, that'll probably be the day when I meet David Godman in person and uh, I can say I have evolved. No, I'm not there yet. Uh, a long, 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 long ways to go. Life as an investor is a tough one. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> and rightfully so. I mean, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Everybody would be Warren Buffett. Yeah, and we learn so much about about ourselves and, and the world. Yeah. And I was thinking about your what you said earlier about uh, that, I mean, a part why we read books is to find our own masters. Yes. But in the end, if we read the book that, that you have recommended today, it's also, I mean, you need to figure out when you more or less know um I mean, when you have settled your philosophy and so on. And uh, I was I was going to ask you, I mean, you have read many books over your career. And 
how much uh, of your current reading is books compared to 10Ks, for example? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually a, it's a mix of both all the time. Um, you know, um, I maintain a log of all the books that I read. Um, on an average, I seem to go somewhere, between, somewhere around 35, you know, 30 to 40 books a year um, is what I seem to be averaging at this point. Um, it's a, I wish, I, I wish I had, you know, such a, um, the wide reach that Charlie Munger recommends, the hundred mental models in the lattice work. I certainly don't. Um, you know, my, my interests are in business biographies, autobiographies, biographies, and investment related, um, related books. And I sort of mix them up with, uh, the Bill Bryson's of the world and Siddhartha Mukherjee's of the world, sort of trying to, uh, you know, balance them out. And, uh, uh, you know, I wish it was a lot wider than that. Um, but I'm, um, spending, I don't know, depends on what time period it is during the year, earning season, almost 100% of the day, reading, um, transcripts, companies, the peers, uh, updating my numbers and stuff like that. Um, but off earning season, it's a good mix of, uh, you know, books and coming up with ideas, reading other annual reports and research reports and things like that. Um, so it sort of moves around a lot, but, uh, yeah, I'd say on an average about 30 plus books. And how do you select that? I mean, there's such an abundance of books and there's new books coming out. There's classic, you can reread books. Um, I, I don't reread them as often as I would like to. This one particularly, Search and Secret India, I've done a few times, but um, uh, I don't reread them as often as I would like to. A um, number of different sources, uh, you know, the bibliographies in the back many times have some good recommendations. Um, friends, friends uh, and other readers um, put out their notes and, you know, sometimes in talking to them, we stumble upon certain good books. Uh, it's a variety of different sources. Um, there was a time when I used to think, um, when I used to question as to where my next book was going to be. Now, you know, um, you're looking at the office here. We've got close to 650 books, and there's a big pile to my right. Sounds like a dream. There is a bigger pile, and there's a smaller pile. The bigger pile is the books that I've read, but I need to update the um, annotations onto an app. And the other pile is the one that I'm going through. So it's a uh, it's an ongoing process. Certain days I spend more time books more time um, on animals and if you could only keep three of those 650 books which would those three be my first recommendation would be i think this is by far the most underfollowed underrepresented uh, investment book it's called uh, off long-term value and wealth creation by uh, an indian manager 
His name is Bharat Shah. Unfortunately, the book is not available on Amazon or other sources. But uh, if you or your listeners wanted to Google it, it seems to be easily uh, accessible on on the net. A phenomenal book. Um, the quality investor. He invests exclusively in India, by the way. He wrote this a number of years ago. He asked him. I've requested him to update the, uh, you know, come out with a new edition. Um, he just laughs it off. Uh, <laughs> but I think uh, it's a phenomenal book. It's only, you know, it's a hundred plus page book. But the first half, fifty something, is where the text is. The second half is more tables. They're more. India related and uh, may not be of much use, but it's a you know phenomenal investing book. What is your main takeaway from this book? The focus on quality, um, the focus on quality and how um, how not to use valuation as the primary uh, source of your investing ideas. It's an important criteria, as I've laid out in my. Investment criteria. It is part of the criteria, but it is the last of the four, and um, perhaps that's why that's another reason why this book resonated well with me. He goes on to many other aspects. Quality businesses don't necessarily trade at a cheap valuation. Um, yeah, you can sort of wait out um, for crisis to hit like a COVID or a 2008, but that's not an investment strategy. And so it's better to invest in quality. And during those time periods when things go crazy, perhaps add more if you have the cash. So um, that would be my number one recommendation. Um, my second recommendation would be this book by William Poundstone, a title called uh, Fortune's Formula. Not sure if you've read it. Uh, yeah, uh, the originality of the thinking, you know, um, it's Ed Thorpe, who uh, is a mathematician, sort of uh, connects the quantitative aspect of gambling um, uh, to eventually investing. In, you know, um, it's a phenomenal book, the originality of the thought process. Of course, we are long-term investors, and that may not necessarily resonate um, well with an investor standpoint, but uh, uh, just the raw power of the brain of uh, uh, Claude Chen, uh, you know, Kelly, um, and particularly Ed Thorpe. Um, the, I remember I picked up this book, and... Um, it was late at night. I had to, unfortunately, I was sleepy. I had to sort of put it down and, you know, devour the book the following day. And um, uh, I don't necessarily read books that way. It generally takes me a few days, but this one I just couldn't put it down. Um, and and so that would be number two. And then, um, um, you know, I, Buffett has recommended this book. I didn't necessarily buy it at the time when he did, but uh, it's book titled uh, Reading Between the Lines by Rittenhouse. Um, it's about evaluating 
management communication. You know, one of your questions was about how to evaluate management teams. And this is a part answer to that question as well. And you know, she goes on to analyze letters and other communication from management teams and sort of literally reads between the lines, you know, uses the terms, phrases, um, and many other aspects of their communication to make her decision about the quality of management teams. Um, well, there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other books. Um, I've listened to some of your previous podcasts and some of your guests have made some fantastic recommendations um, and other podcasts as well. And, uh, um, and so, I, you know, from my angle, uh, somewhat of a, hopefully an interesting list, but a quirky list that uh, answers your question. Thank you so much for that, Sri, and thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast uh, to share your thoughts on on how to become a better investor and person. Um, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Absolutely, loved our conversation. Um, the questions were profound. Um, many of them I had to really think deep, um, and uh, sincerely appreciate you having me on your wonderful podcast wish you the best in your pursuit um hopefully it's also combined with some spiritual aspect as well and uh look forward to uh, staying in touch look forward to meeting you in omaha both of you and uh, look forward to you know um keeping in touch thank you likewise uh, Sri. and uh, just uh, the last question where can our audience follow you i have a website Yes, www.svncapital.com, where I publish um, my uh, my writings, my interviews, um, and I write to my investors twice a year. I don't put the letters on the website for a couple of technical reasons, but uh, generally everything about me is available there. I'm also relatively active on Twitter, not not quite as active as I would like it to be. But uh, my Twitter handle again is at SVN Capital. So uh, those are two sources. I'm also on LinkedIn, but uh, much of what is available either on my website and uh, Twitter would be repeated there. Thank you so much and see you in Omaha. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.